0: Surface. i'll say it again now i don't know if singing like that makes it easier to preach or harder to preach it's uh i don't do a good job of going on vacation and getting away um i haven't done that for the last couple of years so thank you for the opportunity to do that a little bit here at the beginning of the year um one of the reasons i don't go on vacation is i miss you guys when i'm gone um I'm also really bad at resting. That's also the other part of it. so um, but yeah we've we're, we're just trying to take some family time to rediscover some family time and so thank you for the freedom to do that a little bit uh, here at the beginning of the year. Um, we're coming to Leviticus chapter 17 and um, before we jump into that, I want to I want to make an announcement if I could. Uh, and I know a pastor going on vacation. And then coming back and making an announcement. No, uh, Parker and Michelle, um, they're having a baby. (laughs) Transition. The king of transitions. There you go. Let's get happy, right? That's awesome. So super happy for you guys. Super excited. I told her I I was going to embarrass her. She gave me permission to embarrass her. Actually, I think she wanted me to tell you today so she could post it on Facebook. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. She wants to make it Facebook official, so um they are having a baby. We're excited for you guys and excited to celebrate with you. All right, good. Leviticus chapter seventeen. Let's uh, open God's word. Kango transitions, back to it. Uh, um man, if you had we could have announced that on the one like several weeks ago about, you know, cycles and all of that and that No. <laughs> no, not appropriate. Okay. I told her I was going to embarrass her, and that just did it right there. So that was the one. Okay, Leviticus chapter 17. Last week, thank you, Kenny, for opening up God's word in, in verses 1 through 9, really reminding us that the at the crux of who it is to be the people of God is we are worshipers. We are, we are worshipers. That's, that's who God is making us into, who God has designed us to be, is a people who worship. and And because of that... We remember now that in Leviticus chapter 16 is kind of that pinnacle point in the book where everything up to that has been showing all the sacrifices, all the priestly jobs, getting to that point of the day of atonement. This one day in chapter 16 where God's people, their sins are taken away. They're forgiven and then they're also put onto this scapegoat and taken outside of the camp. And it's this beautiful reminder of what God does to redeem us and to forgive us and to make us right with him. And then the rest of the book, starting with chapter 17, is how do you then live out the reality of being a people who have been purchased by God? forgiven and redeemed by god how do you live that out in holy living and so it's appropriate then just like the ten commandments where i'm the lord your god who brought you out of egypt you should have no other gods before me he starts with worship then it would make sense he starts with worship here that what it looks like to be the blood-bought people of god is we are worshipers and it begins to flow into that worship And what we think about God and the uh, the sacrifice that's been made and the atonement that's been made for us actually then begins to permeate every other area of our lives. It begins to flow down into every other area of our lives. And so we think about holiness, and when we're told, be holy for I am holy, I'm not sure what comes to mind, but I think for a lot of us, the first thing that comes to mind is actually behavior. Like if God says, be holy, he's like, here's your list. Now that you do those things, that's going to be holy. Okay. And so we get to behavior first. And and it's right for us to think about behavior. But I want you to understand this. If behavior is the goal, then at no point in the entire Old Testament and New Testament and the 2000 years since the New Testament have God's people been holy. If it's all about behavior. So there's got to be something different. And, and what the Old Testament un, unwraps for us and then we see the fulfillment of it in Jesus is God is actually dealing with the heart before he deals with behavior. Behavior is an overflow of the heart. And so when people's hearts are hard, when people's hearts are far from God, then their behavior is not going to be holy. So God is making a way for people's behavior to be forgiven, but also their hearts to be redeemed so that they can be a people that are holy unto him. And so we need to remember these things. So I want you to re- be reminded of two overarching realities that we see throughout the book of Leviticus that are really g- going to come into play here. And the first is this, God's people are redeemed to be made holy. We don't act holy in order to get redeemed. This is a really important part of the story of God's redemptive plan because we often read this old testament law and we think okay if they had just done all of these things really well then God would have been pleased with them that's no God bought them out of slavery And he is making a way for them to be his people. He redeems them so that they can be holy. He doesn't say, be holy and then I'll redeem you. Is everybody with me? The second thing we have to remember is this, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the redemption and atonement that we need. But he's also the fulfillment of all of the holiness that God desires for us, that God requires of his people. If we're going to find holiness now as New Testament believers, as followers of Christ, it's not going to be just in... Following a list of rules, although obedience is incredibly important, we obey because we see the beauty and the glory and the greatness of Jesus, and we take him as our Lord and we submit to him. So we remember here at the beginning of chapter 17 that God makes clear that the primary mark of a holy people is worship. So what you're doing right now marks you out from as different from a lot of the rest of the world. We can all agree to that, right? You drove by your neighbor's houses. They didn't leave their house this morning. So gathering as the people of God is one way that we actually demonstrate that we belong to him. Coming and gathering, taking the Lord's Supper, there are all kinds of ways that we do that. But God has made us into worshipers because God's holy people are meant to be set apart from the world. And we're set apart from the world in order to display the worth and the glory of the Lord God. We are meant to be set apart as worshipers in order to display the worth and the glory of of God. And that's where we come to in Leviticus 17. You've got to remember these people are going to the promised land, this land of Canaan. And in Canaan are going to be a whole lot of people who worship a whole lot of other gods. So, what's going to make them distinct? What's going to make them holy? What's going to make them set apart? They're going to be worshipers of the one true God. How are their lives going to be marked out as worshipers of the one true God? And God starts with one of the things that is most basic you got to eat. Leviticus 11, he gives a list of things not to eat, of things to eat. Now he's talking about how you eat the things you're permitted to eat. So this, list this these words we're going to read here are going to be really a universal truth for the people of Israel that they are to live under when they come into the promised land. Put it into practice now in the desert and in the wilderness. When you get to the promised land, you'll actually be a people who are holy and set apart from the rest of the world. And this is what verse 10 of Leviticus chapter 17 says. If anyone of the house of Israel... Or of the strangers who sojourn among them, eats any blood. So let's stop right there. This is what I mean by it's a universal truth. Most of God's law that was given, do you, you noticed it, it was the people of Israel were the ones who were supposed to follow it. Now God is saying, it's not just the people of Israel, it's anybody who's living among the people of Israel, the sojourner. Even if they're not part of the people of Israel, It's everybody needs to follow this law that are within the boundaries of this people that God calls his people. He says, If they eat any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it, that's really important, you can underline that in your Bible, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is in the blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beast, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. So today's passage is laying out a prohibition concerning how and what God's people should eat. It's not like that list back in Leviticus chapter 11, where it's this list of the cloven foot and all, right? you can't, what you can and can't eat. This is now, you know what you can eat. It's how do you eat it? How do we do this as a set apart people? How do the people of Israel do this as a set apart people? These are clean animals. They're meant to eat. The passage deals solely with the issue of blood, the blood of animals that are clean to eat. So what I want to do is just spend a lot of the time here unpacking what the passage actually says so that then we can understand how that applies to us as believers. Okay, So let's make sure we understand what the actual passage says so that we're not confused here. The first thing you've got to understand is that the symbol and meaning of the blood is what gives God the reasoning behind, here's how I'm atoning for your sin, and the reasoning behind, don't eat this. Okay? It's the symbolism of the blood. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. What we can say is this this type of animal is the type of animal that could have been sacrificed. Does that make sense? So when he's talking about these animals, he's talking about animals that could be sacrificed. This is the argument he's making. But he makes the whole prohibition against all animal blood being eaten. And this is what he's making clear in as he repeats this in other verses throughout the passage, like verse 14 as well. The first thing is this, blood signifies life. And God is the giver of life, so if God says, don't do it, we go, okay, God, because you're the giver of life. We have to understand, he is the giver of life, then gets to determine what happens with life. And so, the blood signifies life, which means that the blood poured out would signify death. Okay, so God is making sure we understand the symbolism here in the blood itself. The ancient pagan cultures the Egyptians, where they came from, and the Canaanites they were going into, the Amalekites, the people that they would fight in wars, all of the peoples of the land they were going into would use in their idol worship and in their, their occult practices the blood in a different way. They would ingest the blood, use the blood. They actually believed there was spiritual power in the blood. There are still cultures today that do this all over the world. And we understand that people think, oh, there's life blood, which means the spiritual power is in the blood. if I ingest that, if I eat that, then I can become godlike and take on the strength of this being, this creature. No, no. God is saying that blood represents life, that the life of that animal is in the blood. Once it leaves that animal, there's no life in it. Okay, so you're not getting spiritual life. He doesn't want his people to act like the rest of the world, thinking that there's some spiritual reality to ingesting blood. He wants them to understand that this blood represents life. The second thing he, he wants us to see is that blood is a gift. You see it there in verse 11? He says, I have given it for you on the altar. Blood is a gift for God's people for worship. So God is reminding the Israelites that the blood itself is a gift for his people for worship. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. God has given it. It's an act of his mercy and grace. He has given his people the blood for the altar to make atonement. So let me just step aside for just a moment. Quick quick application here. If God gives something good, how often do we take something good and twist it? How often are we people who take god 's grace and His mercy, some gracious gift from God and use it for our own devices and designs and twist it and make it into something evil? I mean i don 't know, but yeah, come up about forty seven things like that like we we it doesn't take long at all for us to begin to think of things that God has done for us then we can easily turn on its head and it becomes a vice. God is calling his people to be holy and separate, and he has given. A gift. This blood is meant to be part of worship. How often do we take things that should be sacred and turn them into something evil? Mm -hmm. Only we would be a people who would take God's grace, not for granted, or misuse it, or abuse it. The third thing God wants us to say, Is The blood is representative of God's work of substitution for sinful people. Because he's given it for worship, he says it's on the altar that it is given. It's for atonement by the life of this animal. And so the life of the animal was going to be given for the life of the person who deserved to die for their sins. Blood is meant to represent God's work of substitution for sinful people. Excuse me. I coached all day yesterday, so you're going to be lucky if I keep my voice for the rest of the time. Um, God's design for atonement was that it would come through the blood, that without without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. This is God's design. So he wants to remind his people that God has made substitution for them, which means don't ingest the blood that is meant to remind you of substitution. It needs to be poured out. To utilize that blood for anything else was to lose the sacredness of that blood. It was to cheapen God's gracious gift of substitution. The, the fourth thing you can see from the passage, I think it's really clear, and you can look at verse 10 for this, is that God's people are called to worship through the blood. And worshiping God in any other way, this is coming out of verse 9 where they were worshiping in the wrong place, right? Goat demons, for those of you who were here last week, the the whole goat demon thing. They were worshiping the wrong gods and they were worshiping in the wrong place. But God's people are called to worship through the blood. Verse 10 says this, If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Th- this is how... Essential, this is to the central issue of being God's people, of worship, is that God would say He gives the strongest warning and even the strongest punishment for eating blood. I want you to catch what He says here. The normal punishment for sin would be to be cut off from God's people. But God goes a step further. Like, they would be put outside the camp until they were clean, they would be put outside the camp and they couldn't go to the promised land, whatever it may be. Maybe cut off from His people is that you would be stoned. That's the harshest thing up to this point. But this is what he says. He says, I will set my face against that person. That goes a step further than losing communion with the people of God. All of a sudden, God is now displeased with you. God, in his judgment, has turned his face from you. God looks on your sin and can look on it no longer and turns his face from you. We have a picture of this, don't we, at the cross? The father turned his face away, not because he was displeased with his son. No, he would be pleased with his son's sacrifice It's because your sin and my sin was placed on the Savior. And he turned his face away in this judgment. And it's because Jesus became the curse for us on the cross that we now get his righteousness. And so he's saying here, you're going to be put into that cursed place, that place outside of the grace and the favor of the Lord as he sets his face against that person. This is so central, it's a universal reality, but it's also incredibly foundational to who the people of Israel would be. To this day, faithful Jewish people have kosher markets, kosher meat. Right? They're they're treating meat in this way. They're constantly making sure to follow these laws. But the next thing I would say is this. I think this is really important for us to understand as well. Is that God leaves no room for the world's way of worship among his people. He leaves no room for the world's way of worship. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. There was no room even for an outsider, a sojourner to worship their false gods among the people of God. Is everybody with me on this? So they were not going to be able to take all of their traditions and come among the people of God and say, hey, hey, yeah, we can add that God thing, one true God. But we we got like 16 others. This is the reverse of what happened with Abraham. You guys remember Abraham from Genesis? What was Abraham? Abraham didn't have any land of his own. He was a sojourner in the land that was promised going to be promised to his descendants. Everybody with me? He was a sojourner. His whole life he's a sojourner. That's why he went from place to place. And when he finally found the Oaks of Mamre, he like settled in. But he was still a sojourner. It's tent cities. That's what he's doing. And the people were looking at him, and here's what would happen. The rest of the people around him would say, hey, there's Abraham, the one God guy. While we are the people established in the cities, the multiple God people. We've got all of our sacrifices being made. We've got all of our blood being poured out. We've got all of the things we do. We're sacrificing children over here. There's there's Abraham, the one true God guy. And he was a sojourner. And here's what happened. Every time there was a war or a battle that needed to be fought, everybody wanted Abraham on their side. Because they were like, you know, we could really use that one true God guy. And the one true God. Now, Still, we're trusting our guys, but, I mean, if he's the one true guy, it, it wouldn't hurt to have him on our side. So he's a sojourner among them, and he was given the freedom to worship as he pleased. Now, let, let me make sure you understand this. Abram kept failing because he was a sojourner in the land, and he wouldn't trust God. So this is the reverse. The reverse now is we're the people of God, and there are sojourners who come among us. Do we demonstrate the glory and the holiness of the one true God when we say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't have to actually worship the one true God. Just, just like take on some of the cultural dynamics of what we do. Now, you can continue doing those things. This is what would happen. And it's definitely going to happen when they get into the land, isn't it? When they get into a promised land where now they're outnumbered. And they take the land, and now the people who used to own the land are now the sojourners in the land, and they've got to live among the people. If we're not holy and set apart and distinct in our worship and distinct in our lifestyle, it's not the people of the land, the sojourner who's going to change. It's going to be us who's going to change. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little yeast changes the whole lump. Jesus warns us about this. And those of us who understand that we belong to God need to understand that, no, there's a one true God who wants to be worshipped in one true way. So when God makes a decree for his people, he calls his people to holiness, not to half-hearted, reluctant obedience. He doesn't call us as his people to half-hearted, reluctant obedience. He calls us to holiness. He calls us to be a people who are set apart. He calls us to be a people who don't just do the pragmatic thing that works. We don't get to step back and say, I kind of like the way the world does that, and I kind of like the way the world does that. Let's add it in. We're distinct and set apart. We have a king who has spoken, and we follow his decree. He also gives us three types of animals covered in the passage just really quickly i already covered one the first is those animals that were meant for sacrifice we know that people would eat those if they were part of this if that was part of the sacrifice and the festival so it's not unusual for those to be eaten but that blood was meant for atonement was meant to be put on the altar The the next set of animals were what we love around here is those that you hunt and kill for food right so the those that you would hunt or kill for food, whether you were an Israelite or you were a sojourner, if they were hunted and killed for food, verse 13 tells us what to do with those. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten. So you're not supposed to be killing the ones you can't eat in order to eat them, right? These are the clean animals that you... Kill to eat shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. so the the prohibition still stands don't eat the blood, but you're supposed to pour out, drain the blood, and then cover it with dirt, right Presumably so that no one else can come around, gather it up and use it in sacrifice to goat demons, of course, right It's, it's so that no false worship could happen, no ingestion could happen, nothing of that sort could happen. no uncleanness would spread. no blood was to be consumed. But God was making provisions so that it couldn't be misused as well. The third type of animal is the animal that dies of natural causes. Look at verse 15. Every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beast, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. These are the animals I want to eat. This is why. Did you notice you don't have to drain the blood? anybody eating steak that's halal or kosher it is not very yummy most of the time like i'm all like angus grass-fed like little pink going through like it need i need it to be seeping onto my plate a little bit for me to love a steak okay well done not my thing you, if it's a good steak you don't need a one and then my wife disagrees with me on that this is a point of contention in our marriage not on mine. Not on my steaks. That's right. You're exactly right. My steaks are the best. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, I love. We love a good steak in our family. When Cassid was how old were you two? Uh, for her second birthday, we asked her where she wanted to go to eat, and she said Outback. Um, when she was asked, when she was like three or four, what's your favorite vegetable? She said steak. Uh, I've raised my children well. But you can imagine reading these passages, you might go, yeah, I really like a good steak, and I really like it. Maybe some of you are looking at me, and you're crazy. But you might get a little scared about what you were planning to eat for lunch today, if there was beef involved or any other animal. But I want you to understand this. Like, these animals, did you notice it? There's no don't eat the blood. Did you catch that? Why? Presumably because there would be this coagulation that would have happened. You come across livestock in the field. It wasn't that you couldn't eat it. Obviously, you wouldn't eat it if it was rotten. But if there was any coagulation, you're not going to be able to drain the blood. So what does God do? He says, I know you got to eat. <laughs> so he gets provision. This isn't a sin issue to eat that blood. It's, but you better get clean after. It's a ritual impurity issue. So if you eat of it, which I'd be like, hey, neighbor, your cart, could you just happen to hit one of my goats so I can have some good meat this week? You know, whatever. I mean, I'd be fine in a around. I don't know about you guys, but I'd be like, you know, trying to do this. Um, I want you to understand, like, uncleanness, though, is a real issue. And so what happens if you know that this animal has not been drained of the blood and you eat the animal? Are you guilty of sin at that point with one of these that died of natural causes? No, but you are ritually impure coming before the Lord in worship. So if you know you need to deal with it, it says you've got to wash and wait till evening. So God doesn't call it sin. He's not drawing out sin here. What he's doing is he's saying uncleanness and impurity needs to be dealt with or it spreads and destroys. We've seen this already, haven't we? Is that. If you don't deal with the impurity, then all of a sudden you've got this cow that you're eating and you're feeding your wife and your kids. And it's a big cow, so you're sharing it with your neighbors. And all of a sudden, you're not thinking through the purity and impurity laws. And all of a sudden, you're not keeping God at the forefront and his law and his word at the forefront. You're just being expedient and pragmatic. Like, it's a cow. Let's eat it. But every act of... Every act of life is an act of worship for the people of God. Everything we do has to be with God at the forefront, with God in mind, with God as the author and God as the king. So this really leads us to the question of what we're supposed to be doing as God's people. Because, like I said, you could be reading this and being like, I guess we've got to take that pot roast out of the cro- pot. Right? You may be thinking through, didn't go to the kosher market to get our meat. What am I supposed to do? And I want you to understand this. So there is a, I would usually say elephant in the room, but I'll say cow in the room um, that we need to deal with. That really played in first service. Didn't really play here. That's good. All right. So the question is this. Is it against God's law for believers in Jesus to eat meat with blood? Because I know that's what we're wondering. Okay. Because I'm going to see some of you in the Wendy's drive-thru after church. Okay. So I know that's what we're, if that's beef. Okay. Okay, let me let me let me make sure. Is it against the law? Here's what I want you to know. No. As God's people, as people in Christ Jesus, it is not against however, if it is against your conscience, it would be wrong. So I'm not gonna say you shouldn't be a vegetarian, I'm just saying you have the freedom to not be a vegetarian. Right? You know, am not saying you shouldn't go to the kosher, kosher market. I'm saying you have the freedom not to go to the kosher market. And it's not me who says that it's the law of freedom in Christ that says this, because the blood of animals is just a symbol. It's a signifier of a greater reality. It's a shadow of of the fact that the blood of Christ has purchased us. It's not only purchased our forgiveness, but purchased our holiness and our right standing, our ritual purity before God so that we now, because of the blood of Jesus, can come into his presence and worship. Because of Jesus, we have access to the throne of grace. We don't come in by washing our hands or our bodies or our clothes or eating or not eating. We don't come by the blood of goats or rams or calves, but we come by the blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses us from all unrighteousness and makes us right with God. So Jesus becomes the fulfillment of this passage by his once for all blood atonement for us. So that now we are free in him to eat and drink to the glory of God. We are free now to eat and enjoy the good gifts of God. So. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 really speaks to this. It, I'd encourage you to read through it on your own because it brings up an interesting point. The people of God in Corinth are asking the question, hey, we live in a pagan land where people are making sacrifices to idols and then they sell the meat in the market. Can we eat that meat? And Paul says, sure, you can eat that meat. Why? Because there's no actual demon in the meat. Right. It's all symbolic. You you can eat that meat. But if you're with a weaker brother or sister in Christ and having a meal with them and they say, hey, was this meat sacrificed to idols? Don't serve it. Because it caused someone to stumble. If somebody sits there and you're having a meal with them and they say this meat was sacrificed to idols, don't eat it. You have the freedom to eat it, but you also have the freedom not to eat it in that moment to serve their conscience. You don't get to tell people what they can and can't eat, but you have now the freedom to not eat in order to serve others. So, so what am I saying with all of that? We have a freedom, and the freedom isn't give me as much steak as I want. The freedom is what serves the people around me the best. The freedom is to take on the, the burden of others and to love others and to serve others. So what should we do with this passage? If I can eat steak, amen, amen. If I can eat steak, what should I do with this passage? The first thing is this. Be thankful. We should be thankful. We should be thankful and honor God for the gift of Jesus' atoning blood. This is going to sound really crass, I know, but this is, how, this is how simple and profound and important this is. Is that when you eat that steak and it is juicy, you should be thanking Jesus because without him, no juicy steak. It's not just yummy, it is a gift. When you are eating anything that God has made in all of his creation, you should be thanking Jesus, the author of all good gifts. Yes, we should honor God for the gift of Jesus' atoning blood, which means that we should not misuse or abuse what God has given as good. In the same way the people of Israel were to abstain from eating the meat with blood because it would deny the purpose of the blood for the atoning sacrifice, we as believers in Jesus have to honor the blood of Jesus poured out for us in the way we eat. He is the lamb without blemish and the way we live holy and righteous before him is the way we honor him. So how do we do that? Let, let, me, let me make sure you understand how we can be thankful and honor God. The first thing is this. Don't reject, don't reject the gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Don't reject the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. And I mean that in two ways. The first is if you're here today and you're like, didn't think I was hearing a sermon on steak today, glad I came. I want you to know this is not a sermon on steak this is a sermon where Jesus is the giver of life and not just the giver of your life, not just the giver of an unborn baby's life, the giver of eternal life. He's the one that we come to and we must say, I have rejected you. I need you. I have no other way other than you to come into your kingdom, to come into hope, to come into This freedom, don't trample on his saving work by rejecting him. But there's another way we reject him. It's not just for the person who's never believed, it's for the person who says they believe, but continues to try to heap up all their good works to prove their holiness. See, you were redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and he's making you holy. It doesn't work the other way around. And you can trample on his grace, you can trample on the cross, you can trample on his blood by simply trying so hard to prove yourself righteous and holy to everyone else so that they don't know what's actually happening in your heart. These are the Pharisees, right? You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. We don't want to fall into that trap to reject the saving work of Jesus either. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29 puts it this way. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? So if people had God turned his face from them because they ate meat with blood in it in the old covenant, how much more do you think God will turn his face from the people who would trample on his son. Now I want to stop you for just a second. This is written to believers. In Hebrews. He's not talking about all the people you can think of. In the other political party. He's talking about us. How quickly we take the good gifts of God. And turn them for our advantage. For, to make us look better for our convenience and trample the work of Jesus. Don't reject the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. If you want to honor and be thankful for God's gift of Jesus' atoning blood, then do all things to the glory of God, even your meals. This is interesting in first Corinthians chapter 10, he closes out that passage with this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whether you're going to eat meat, sacrifice to idols or not, do it all to the glory of God. Whether you eat meat with blood or not, do it all to the glory of God. Whether you're a a vegetarian or an omnivore, do it all to the glory of God. Paul gives clear direction that every aspect of your lives... And in this passage, what we eat and why we eat it is a way to honor the Lord. God's people are called to be different and holy and set apart. And the way and the reason we eat is an everyday, daily life, emblematic way we can show the world that we belong to him. So how we eat, what we eat, how much we eat, those are all ways that we can demonstrate the glory of God. Because every aspect of our lives comes under God's rule and reign. Every aspect including what you and I eat, including why we eat it, including who we eat with. So I'll ask you this week, who are you going to eat with to God's glory? What are you going to eat to God's glory? Why are you going to eat it to God's glory? How are you going to eat to God's glory? How are you going to be thankful for all of God's good gifts so that when you eat a steak, when you eat chicken, when you eat asparagus this week, you can honor the Lord. This is what God is calling his people to. That's what makes us different. Now it's not what we eat that makes us different, it's why we eat that makes us different. It's we eat to the glory of God. That's very general, I know, but I want to give you one last one, and then we're going to sing and celebrate the fact that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And this is it this is for the church, this is for believers. Earlier in this service, we took the Lord's Supper. And one way that we can make sure that we are honoring and being thankful to God for the gift of Jesus' atoning blood is this. Do not take the Lord's Supper in vain. Don't take it in an unworthy manner. Don't take it in a way that dishonors the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul talks about what to eat and why to eat it, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, interestingly, he goes right into the Lord's Supper. He says, and guess what? You Corinthian Christians, you've been doing this wrong. No, he wants us to understand that we're to do all to God's glory. In verses twenty-six and twenty-seven, this is what he says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's why. We take the Lord's Supper, but then he says this: Whoever therefore eats the that whoever, you catch that? That's the that probably means something like those who are of the people of God and the sojourners among you. Same type of language, right? Whoever. Therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. See, what was happening is this. They were asking questions. Hey, can I eat the meat sacrificed to idols? Because they really just wanted the juicy meat, right? That's what they wanted. Can I eat that? Can I eat all of this? And then when they would come together as the people of God meant to reflect the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the love and the service of the Lord to one another, they were food for themselves they were eating up all that they could they were gorging themselves and the people who didn't have any food didn't have any food and they didn't care they were coming with sin and selfishness to the lord's table and paul calls them on that and says i think you've missed the point point." and he says this so examine yourselves what happens when we examine ourselves sometimes god points out things that need to change Did you catch at the end of Leviticus chapter 17? Remember the whole, I ate the meat of the animal that died of natural causes. And it had blood in it. So I needed to be made ritually pure again. You guys caught that part, right? And then God says, but if you don't wash, you bear your iniquity. I want to make sure you understand this. Did you see it here? Verse 27, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. I need you to hear this. I know we're going through Leviticus and we're searching for ways that this applies to our lives. This is about as clear as it gets. That when one or two of us come in with sin and selfishness to the Lord's table, it spreads. So we not only can't commune with the Lord properly, we can't commune with one another properly. This is why it's important for us to ask the Lord to search us, to try us, to see if there's any wicked way in us. Why? Because He is the God who forgives and redeems and restores, He's the God who makes us whole and pure. He's the giver of life. He needs to be honored as the giver of life. And we do that in every area of life. Because in God's economy, in his redemptive plan, he has graciously made a way for people who are far from him to be brought near by the blood of his sacrifice. He made lambs, he made rams and goats and calves. And he made them long before he set up a sacrificial system. And he made them so that his people could sacrifice them. Their blood could be spilt in their place. He put their lifeblood in them. And he ordained that blood to cleanse his people, Israel, from sin. And make a way for his people to be ritually pure before him. And even more so, before the foundation of the world, he ordained that the Son, Jesus, and his blood would be poured out once for all at the cross of Calvary so that all who trust him, all who are washed in that blood through faith in Jesus's work of salvation on the cross can have eternal life, can have communion with God, can, can come into his presence and remain with him forever, can be redeemed to be a people who are set apart to live holy lives of worship every day. And one day to worship him around his throne for eternity. But today, We glorify God in everything we do, even what we eat, because we are redeemed, bought with the precious blood of Jesus, purchased and pardoned, set free to proclaim that Jesus saves. Will you trust him today? Believer, will will you submit to him today that everything you do today, everything you do each day would be done to his glory so that we're not trampling on the blood of Jesus And if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus, hear the good news that Jesus saves. And he is for you. You who can admit that you're a sinner and admit your need of him. Trust him today. Father, I pray that we would trust him. Lord, and that we, being bought with a price, would now live united to Jesus.